Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. What a beautiful day outside, so I'm glad you're here. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at River Glen, and we're really glad that you're here today. Today, we're going to wrap up this series that we've entitled Stranger Than Fiction. And over the past several weeks, we've looked at some pretty strange stories in the Bible. And some of these stories you might not have been familiar with. And we're looking at these stories not because they're strange or, or they're weird or because they take place thousands of years ago. We're looking at them because even though they did take place thousands of years ago, those teachings still apply to our lives today. And so the period of Judges, without a doubt, is one of the darkest periods in the history of the Jewish people. They're free from Egypt, they're out of slavery, and they're in this promised land right now, but they're not doing what they should do. They're trying to live under their own power and wisdom, and God had this completely different plan for them. Moses told them before they went into the promised land, Moses said, if you follow the decrees and the direction of God, you will be set high Above all the other nations, you will be a blessed people, and that was God's plan. God's plan was to use the nation of Israel to bless them, to use them as a nation to hold up the re to the rest of the world so he could draw the rest of the world to him through Israel. But as we've heard, and as we've seen throughout this ser series, this expression that, that's in the, in the scripture, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And they drifted away from God so far that a generation was raised up that didn't know God and they didn't know his teachings. And so for 400 years, they're in this cycle of disobey and this disobedience is followed by disaster. This disaster is normally the form of another nation coming in and conquering them. And then they cry out and they ask for deliverance. And this deliverance was through a judge. God would raise up a judge for them. And so throughout the whole book, we see this pattern, and it repeats again and again. And we all know the definition of crazy, right? That's when we do the same thing over and over again, and we expect what? Different results, right? That's what they did, and that's kind of what we do sometimes as well. And so we look at the era of the judges, and we wonder if they're crazy. But have you ever done that? Have you ever repeated the same behaviors over and over again and you expect something different to happen? See, the book of Judges is useful for us because we can learn from their mistakes. But the only problem is, generally, as a rule, we don't like to be told what to do. How do you respond? When somebody comes up to you and they say, you know what you should do? Or even better yet, when they skip the, do you know what you should do? And they just come right out and say, you should None of us like being told what to do. If you're even a little bit like I am, as soon as somebody comes up to me and says, you know what you should do? My body goes through this instant reaction and the eyes kind of roll back in my head. They start and as they roll back, they hit a switch in my ears and my ears shut down and then I don't hear anything and there's probably chemistry involved. I don't, I don't know. But then all I hear is wah, 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 right? And we all hear that and we're all like that. And then this triggers the sarcasm response. And I don't know if that's biological or not, but the sarcasm in me starts to engage and I have to use everything I can to stop my mouth and my tongue from actually forming the words I want to say. Right? And don't act like you don't do this because we all do it. We don't want to be told what to do and yet it happens throughout our entire lives. There's this author, his name's Jonathan Lockwood Way, and he wrote this. He wrote, you should is one of the great destroyers of humanity. The fact is, a lot of people want to tell us how to live. 
And this next part, I'm ripping it straight off of Jimmy Fallon. He, he does this bit, it's called Good Advice, Bad Advice. And it's advice that might be good in one situation, but maybe not so good in another situation. And so here's some cleaner examples uh, of the advice he uses. It's not rocket scientist. That's good advice if you're trying something new. It's bad advice if you're trying to land on the moon. Shake what your mama gave you. This is good advice if you're dancing, and it's bad advice if she gave you a hamster. Everyone makes mistakes. Good advice in the classroom, bad advice in the operating room. Suck it up. That's good advice in the gym if you're trying to get stronger. It's bad advice if you're cleaning out the litter box. The reality still remains that lots of people want to tell us how to live. And it starts out when we're young. It first comes from our parents, and that's a good thing. And then our teachers tell us what to do. And then all of a sudden, we're these little people, and we've got all these other little people. They're telling us what they should do, what we should do. We're telling them what they should do. And it's kind of funny at that point. And we get tons of advice on what we should do. Later in life, it's our professors and our bosses. We start doing a lot of reading, and then these authors are telling us what to do. We're getting advice on what careers to pursue, who our friends should be, where should we live, what causes should we support, who should we vote for, what our hobbies should be. The list is endless. And then you come to church, and someone like me up front is saying, you should listen to the Bible. And for a lot of us, this makes a lot of sense because we grew up our whole lives around the Bible. We're familiar with the teachings and we've experienced the power of God in our lives firsthand. But some of you today, you might be a little bit more unskeptical. You might be a little more skeptical, a little more uh, unsure because you're in the process of checking out the teachings of Christianity and you still have questions. And those questions are like, is this in the good advice column or is it in the bad advice column? And you just don't know yet. And if that's where you are, if that's who you are, that's okay. Just sit back and, and give it a listen today. All right, so let's jump back into Stranger Than Fiction. We've looked at a lot of crazy mixed up people so far. And today we're going to look at Samuel. Samuel is the last judge of Israel, and he's unique among them. And here's why he's unique. Samuel has served God faithfully his entire life. Samuel's mother's name is Hannah, and Hannah is barren. And that's just a Bible word for saying she can't have children. So Hannah goes to the temple, and she prays to God for a child. And she says, God, if you give me this child, I will dedicate him to you. I will dedicate him to the temple, and he will serve you his entire life. And so God answers that prayer of Hannah. And Hannah takes Samuel when he's six years old to the temple, and that's where Samuel stays. He spends his whole life serving God. And so he's not mixed up. He's not crazy like some of these other people we've looked at. As a matter of fact, he's almost unique in his devotion to God and to his faithfulness. And that's why we're studying Samuel. That's why we're taking a look at Samuel this afternoon. Because here is the main point, and here's what I want to focus on by studying Samuel. Samuel knew what it meant to let God be his king and to surrender to his rule. And so for the point today's message, our point today, only God is a worthy king. And that's what Samuel knew and that's what we want to find out. No one else, nothing else is worthy 
of our surrender and our submission. So the goal for us then today is to submit to God. And it doesn't matter if it's the thousandth time you've submitted to God or if it's the first time you're going to submit to God. But that's our goal. We want to submit to God in all areas of our lives. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, it's on page 190. We're going to go ahead and uh, look at this entire chapter, chapter 8. And so there's a lot of verses. So what I'll do is we'll kind of put them up on the screens. We'll go through them. And as we go through them, I'll take a break and maybe talk a little bit about what's going on here. So as Samuel grew old, he appointed his son to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. So here's what's going on. Samuel's sons, right, they were raised by him. They should be following in his footsteps. Instead, they're not fit to lead. They should be these wise judges. They should be the followers of Samuel and they should be looking out for the people, but they're not. They're greedy. They can be bought. The people who should be protecting justice are actually obstructing justice. And what they've done is they've made it about themselves and their greed and how can they profit through the temple and it's no longer about serving God. So the elders say, look, Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. So what's going on is the 12 tribes, they're not unified yet. There's 12 tribes in Israel and they're having this hard time working together. Each tribe has its own territory. It has its own separate leader. And their hope is that a king will unite them into a nation and then make them a power. We'll read on. Samuel was displeased with the request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So God is telling Samuel, he's saying, they're not rejecting you. He goes, this is nothing new. They have rejected me repeatedly for the past 400 years. And this idea that they have, the idea that the nation of Israel has to have this earthly king, it's the exact opposite of what God wants for, for Israel. He knows that if they have a king, it's going to be easy for them to forget who God is. They're going to forget everything he's done for them. And so what God is doing in this is he's trying to protect them from a king. And this shows how great God really is because God did then what he does now. God will accept our rejection. He allows us to reject him. He's not going to force himself on us any more than he did on them. And so God says, okay, Samuel, this is what they want. Let's tell them, I'm going to tell you to tell them what life under this king is going to be. And now we're going to look at a whole bunch of scripture here. So read along, bear with me, join in. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who are asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced 
to plow in the fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and charity equipment. The king will take your daughters, he'll take them from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his own officials. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and, and, and attendants. He will, demand, uh, he will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refuse to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Samuel agreed, and he sent the people home. And so in spite of everything that they just heard, in spite of everything that we just read, they're clamoring for this king. They want this king. And it's, if, it's as if they believe that this new system of government is going to bring about the change in their nation, and everything's going to be fine. But their basic problem isn't an issue of government. Their basic problem is their disobedience. And until they change that disobedience problem, nothing is going to change no matter what. And what they really need is a unified faith and not a unified rule. And so check out the audacity. Look at what they say to God. They even come up with a job description for the kind of king they'll follow. They're like saying, okay, this is what we'll do. We want a king who will judge us and lead us to battle. We're going to define the kind of king that we'll have. We're going to define the kind of king we'll serve. And we do that too, if we're not careful. We determine the kind of king we'll serve. And why does Israel want a king? It's simple. They have this desire to be like everybody else around them. They don't want to be different. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. But God wants them different from the rest. That's his plan. His plan is that they are a nation set apart from the rest of the world. And desiring a king is the exact opposite of what God wants for them, and they know it. And that's our basic problem as well. We have the ability for disobedience. And, and as oppressive, we've read about that king, as, as oppressive as that king will be, they don't care. Listen to the words that God used. He's going to draft. He's going to take your men from home. He's going to force them to work. Your daughters, he's going to take them. He'll take the best of your fields. He'll take a tenth of this. He's going to take your slaves. This king will demand. And they want to be like every other nation so badly that they're willing to put up with just about anything. And God's saying this king isn't going to be who you think it is or who he is, and they don't care. And that's one of the basic realities of life. God demands to be our king, but we're free to reject him. We want to look to something else. God wants to be our king, but we don't want him to be. 
We want something else to be the king of our lives. And that's the great tension in this story. And that's the great tension in our lives. See, this idea of a king is like anti-American. We don't relate to it. As a matter of fact, throughout the world, we are distinctly known for not having a king. We fought a war over it. And every 4th of July, we celebrate the fact that we don't have a king. We don't bow down. We don't worship. And we don't submit. So it's hard for us to understand this idea of submitting. The nation of Israel, we studied over the past several weeks, it's not hard for them to submit. They willingly bow down to worship foreign gods. In today's scripture, we even see that they're willing to bow down to tyranny. And here we are in the 21st century, We're not going to bow down. We are not going to bow down and worship a foreign God. We're not going to worship our jobs or our families or our fears or our beers. We don't submit and surrender like that. Our submission looks a little bit different. And here's the question. I, I think this question helps define who our king is. What is the determining factor in our decision making? I think this is the king question. I think this question, the answer to this question, will reveal the kings in our lives. What's the determining factor in our decision-making process? Because we all have decisions to make. How will we spend our money? Where will we go next week? Who will we be be friends with? Where should we live? What should we let into our minds? We have these decisions to make. And the answer to the king question lies in knowing what is the determining factor and our decision-making process. As you might know, biking is kind of my thing. I base my life March through September around biking. Now, I'm not saying that biking is the king of my life. I don't worship my bikes. But listen to how biking impacts my life. First, I spend money on it. Bunches. I don't have any other hobbies, so I can save money for the bike and all the gear that goes along with getting into biking. Each year, there's a number of races you can sign up for. There's a number of big group rides you can sign up for. They all cost money. In early spring, I I pull out my calendar, and I start marking the ones I want to do. And I actually go so far as to start planning vacation time around those rides. Now, I don't live in a vacuum, and I do have a lovely wife, and so I do check with Kelly, so it's not like this is just all about me. But biking is one of my biggest passions in life, and my decisions reflect that passion. In Wisconsin, we get to live outside four to five months a year, and so biking and planning to bike is a big priority for me. I've turned down offers to go to Brewer Games. I've turned down offers to go play golf. I've turned down tons of offers to do other things because they conflict with my biking plans. And during this time of year, for me, you can say that the bike always comes first. So in the summer, cycling is the determining factor in my decision-making process, rightly or wrongly. And don't judge me, because you got your own little things. There's other factors, too. But I think, I think we can say whoever, whatever, becomes the most dominant factor in our decision-making process, that's what really becomes our king. Like I said, I don't worship my bikes. But based on my decision-making process, It could certainly be a king. 
whatever the determining factor in the decision-making process is, that's what becomes our king. And it could be anything. It could be money. You can spend all your time, energy, and effort trying to figure out how to get more money. It could be your work. It could be a family. It could be a particular habit. It could be a substance that you want. Whatever we say yes to at the expense of all other things, that's what it means to have a king. And something or someone is going to be the king of our lives. Now, if we take a step back, and and, and if we focus on eternity, and we look at the big picture, with the right amount of faith, it makes sense for God to be the determining factor in our decision-making process. It makes sense for him to be our king, but we don't. And instead, we give into our appetites or our insecurities or or we play this comparison game, they have, therefore I need, and so I must go get. And we want to, what we really want to do is we want to wiggle on to this throne of our lives. And and for some of us, we'll say things like, "I, I believe in God, but I'm not super religious. And that gives us permission to pursue other kings. There's been times in my life where I've said things like this. Or or we say, God, you're the king of my life except for this part over here. This part, I'm not giving it up. It's mine, whatever it is, if it's my money, if it's a habit, if it's what I put in my mind, if it's where I go online, it's mine. And and we say, God, hands off of this part. You can have everything else. And so you're not going to be the determining factor here. But then what we do is we compartmentalize our faith. Or we say we're Christians, and we identify ourselves with Jesus, but we never invite him into the decisions that we make. We don't, when we have big decisions, we don't stop, and we don't say, God, what should I do in this decision? Or God, what would you have me do? And far too often, we just don't take time to pause and to pray and listen. And since we don't seek God's wisdom regularly, we don't ask him what decision he would want us to make. We still want to call the shots. Have you felt this way? I've felt this way in my life. I'm not fully on board with God. Or or I'll give him everything except this piece I'm going to hang on to that maybe I shouldn't. You identify as a follower, but you forget to bring that into your decision-making process. And so the question isn't how do we reject God, but the question is why do we reject God as king? And here's four reasons why we reject God as king. The first reason we reject God as king is because we think we can rule ourselves. We know what's best. We can do this. We got this. We are commonly told to listen to that inner voice. Be true to that inner self. Obey yourself and do what you think you should do. Obeying ourselves and putting your own self-interest first, that's common advice in our society because we don't want to submit, right? And we're not going to submit but remember, remember this from the earlier messages. It's the thought that we can do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, with who. That's kind of like the underbelly of the American dream. It's this me first attitude. And we see this time and time again in the book of Judges. And it doesn't go well for them. There's no king and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Remember these stories? The first week, we talked about the Levite and the concubine. It was a horrible story, and I'm not going to go into it, but we had these PG-13 signs out there. Remember remember how they sent 12 packages to the tribes? 
Then we get Deborah and Barak, and they're reluctant to listen to God. We talked about Gideon, and Gideon is just this fearful guy, and he's so cowardly that God can barely work through him. And then last week, we talked about Samson. And Samson is just this big ball of lust. Samson sees, Samson wants, Samson takes. And it, so it doesn't go well when we try to rule ourselves. And this is a major point in the book of Judges. And namely, it's don't trust yourself so much. You don't have all the answers. And when we think we do, it leads to disaster. The second reason we reject God as king, is we prefer more manageable kings. We develop habits to serve us. We pick something to serve us, and for a time it does, and eventually we become a slave to it. The cocktail that you had once in a while, maybe every other couple nights to relax after work, it becomes part of your nightly routine, and you're no longer having a cocktail to accompany your pleasures. The cocktails become your pleasure, or, or, or maybe your idea of unwinding is surfing the web and, and you go on YouTube and, and you look for videos with puppies wearing hats and, and you're really relaxing and then all of a sudden you're starting to click on things you never thought you would. You got that promotion and at first it's your dream job and it's everything you wanted it, but now it's a couple, couple months, years later and, and you hate it. Because now you don't have time for anything else. And the very things we thought that would serve us, we're now slaves to. And when they don't work, we throw them off and we try to replace them with a more manageable king. Because what we want to do is what Israel did and we want to write a job description for the king we're willing to serve. The third reason we reject God as king is because we want to imitate those around us. The world... Everyone, they all have kings they want to pursue. They're chasing things and possessions, and it can be cars, and it can be houses, and it can be more money, and whatever it is. And you just don't want to stand alone for Jesus. You might be the only person in your workplace that follows Jesus, but when people come up to you and they, they say, do you really believe this? Do you really believe this about Jesus? Instead of making a stand and saying, yes, he is the way, the truth, and the light. No one goes to the Father but through him. You say things like, well, you know, there's, it works for me. And, and you should find something that works for you. And so what we want to do is we, we, we just want to be like everybody else. And so we don't defend our beliefs that might be unpopular because we want to be so much like everybody else. But why would we possibly do this? Because the promises of following Jesus are so much greater than anything the world has to offer. We're promised an eternity, but our pride gets in the way. And so we compromise so we can be like everybody else. Fourth reason we reject God as king is we forget how great God is. Our thoughts of God fall way short of who he is because we cannot begin to fathom the mind of God. And as we grow in our faith, our thoughts of God have to grow as well. I believe that God smiles all the time because he knows the truth about himself and who he is. And yes, He's compassionate. Yes, he hurts with those who really hurt, and he hurts with all of us when we hurt, but here is who God really is. 
God is omnipotent. And that means he is all-powerful. God can do anything. God is omniscient. And that means he is all-knowing. He knows the past, present, future. He knows it all before it happened. And he knows everything. God is omnipresent. And omnipresent means he is everywhere all the time at once. And that means he is right here right now. That means he's with us when we're alone. That means he's with us when we're in our darkest moments. He is there. And God is omnibenevolent. And that means God is all love. And here's what we need to know. If we meet someone who is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once, and all-loving, we need to submit to that person as the Lord of our lives. Here's what that submission looks like. We declare him as our Lord. The apostle Paul, remember he was Saul, and he persecuted and murdered, he murdered Christians. Then he has this encounter with Jesus, and he goes 180 degrees, and he's this different person. Paul wrote in the letter to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You declare that Jesus is Lord. And if you've never done that, it's a great time to do it. It is a great time to declare that Jesus is the Lord of your life and believe that he raised for you. And, and if you've done this before, and maybe it's been the thousandth time, it's a great time to remember who that king is and who you serve and, and while you serve, why you serve him. Second way we can show that we submit Jesus tonight, you probably, if you came in on this side, you saw this big pool, you saw some water rides out there. We're doing something that we call it baptism bash. And baptism is an awesome way to show that we submit to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We have 20 people or so signed up to be baptized tonight, so immediately after service, you're all invited out to the parking lot. But in baptism, here's what happens. We identify with Jesus. Jesus set the example. Jesus was baptized, and that's when his ministry began. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, before he left, he said, I want you to go into the nations. I want you to teach them what I've taught you, and I want you to baptize them in my name. Baptism is this great outward expression of this inward belief. And we go all the way down in the water, and that symbolizes death to ourself, and then we come up to this new life in Christ, and it shows that he's the king of our lives. And if you've been thinking about baptism, but you haven't done it, tonight's a great night to do it. The water's like, I don't know, 82. It's going to be hot out there. It'll be refreshing. There's a table. You can go to the table in the lobby, grab a towel, grab shorts, grab a t-shirt. We'd be happy to have you join us in baptism, because that's a way to show that Jesus is the king of our lives. And the third thing is just invite them. Invite them into our decision-making process on a daily basis. Get in the habit of praying every single day. And when you have decisions to make, these can be prayers of thanksgiving. You can just start there. You can say, God, thank you for everything. And then when you get into the point where you have decisions, ask him what he would have you do in this situation. And sit and listen and wait for that response. And the more you do that, the more you'll strengthen that prayer muscle. Well, in just a minute, we're going to remember that Jesus is our king in another way. Jesus 
night he died, he, he, he took some bread and he took a cup and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we're gonna do communion. If, if you're new to River Glen, our communion is for everybody here. The trays will come by. If you're a follower of Christ, participate. You're gonna take a cup and, and you're gonna eat the bread and, and drink the juice. But what we're doing is we're saying collectively that Jesus, we remember the sacrifice that you made for us and you are the king of our lives. So I'm gonna pray, and then we'll take communion together. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for just making yourself known to us. Lord, there's so many ways to love you and so many ways we can acknowledge you. God, I just pray that you would move through this entire building, through everybody in it, God. I pray that we would feel your stirrings in our hearts and we would have this desire to submit whatever areas in our lives that we're not, that we would submit them to you. God, would you be first in our thoughts in our minds, in our hearts. Would your words be on our lips? God, I pray for the people being baptized tonight as they take this next step to publicly proclaim you're the king of their lives. God, if anybody's here right now and they're thinking about doing it, I pray that you would just give them the courage to go to the table and just to step forward and be baptized. God, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you so much for continuing to pursue us in love and that love has a name and it's Jesus. And God, we submit to him. Amen.